It's a light breakfast with Shaz, and with me is international psychologist Dr. Angela Bass. Good morning, Dr. Angela. Good morning, Shaz. Now, Sri Lanka is mourning their dead. Families are attending funerals all over the state, and it's a very, very sad time indeed for not just those in Sri Lanka, but those affected by what happened on Easter Sunday. I guess the question here is, how should we approach or speak to those who are affected by grief? especially at this scale, on this scale. When you have such a terrible event, and that too on a day that's so important to a religion, words actually defy. I think people are in such a hurry to do something, do something. They're a human doing as opposed to human being. Simply saying, how's your heart? What is there I can do? Saying, I have no words. There's nothing I can say and do, but, you know, creating a space, a holding space where that person feels seen or heard is at this moment, just about all that we can do, I would assume that most people are in shock. Mm, indeed. And of course, if you are not physically close to this person uh, and you can't offer your shoulder or a hug, um, a lot of people do like to drop messages. What, what, what's the type of language you should be aware of when you're you know, trying to talk to someone or give condolences to someone who's experiencing this type of grief? I think it's important to know your audience. A lot of times people try to, for example, love another uh, the way they want to be loved. They try to offer condolences maybe in a way that they would like to have it received. But that's not necessarily appropriate. You know, people might say, well, it was instant or they're in a better place now or destiny, karma. There's a time and place when they're going to be taken. They're going to be taken. Might be true, might not be true, but probably not the most appropriate thing to say, right? Mm -hmm. So something as simple as, you know, that conveys that I'm thinking of you, simply saying that, or if there's anything you need, I'm here. And then leaving that. But sometimes, you know, we're so shocked ourselves that we fall into silence, which can also be detrimental. Mm, indeed. When we come back, we'll be taking a look at this article that's just uh, come out in the New Straits Times about smart parenting and how we should own up to our mistakes. So we make them even as parents. <laughs> that's up next after Lenka here on Light. On My Matters, I have international psychologist Dr. Angela Bass. And uh, with smart parenting, it's important that we own up to our mistakes. Because, you know, as parents, whether we are new parents or old parents, we do tend to make mistakes and make them along the way. So, Dr. Angela, in the Asian context, do we find it really that difficult to apologize to our children? What's your observation on this? Personally and professionally, absolutely. If my limited, unscientific sample size is anything to go by, there's not respect for young people on average. Mm -hmm. And so in my work, I've actually become, by default, in a way, a young person or a child advocate. If you want to raise healthy citizens that go on to serve the world and where we can help, even in the long term, term and extreme cases mitigate things like violence and terrorism, it starts with home. Mm -hmm. Like even, for example, just to tie it back to Sri Lanka, what we're seeing, how much do you want to bet that their home life wasn't great? You know, I mean, it's it's not necessary all the time, but there's a lot to be said about the environment. And when, you know, you're sending this message that 
I'm always right. There's a hierarchical structure, you know, power. I'm older. It's very authoritarian and that doesn't bode well. Mm, I see. I mean, I remember being about seven years old and um, playing in my father's uh, study and I made a mess and he came home and he saw it and he flipped and I thought he was like overreacting, but I, you know, being seven, I'm like, oh, sorry. And I left. Later that night, he came to my room to apologize for mm. flipping out on me. And that point, that was my aha moment, like, wow, older people can be wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and that that gave me actually a lot more empathy with young people as I was parenting my own children. So I, I, I apologize to them all the time because I'm always flipping out over yeah. little things. Okay, so we, we want to make sure that, you know, the way an apology is significant or sticks is if we hopefully don't have to do it all the time mm. because we're behaving well. It does lose its effect if, you know, in some ways we might teach children, I can get away with anything as long as I say I'm sorry. Mm. That's also not where we want to go. But having said that, after all these years, you still remember that incident with your father. Yeah, It's a very teachable moment because our template is parents are all knowing they're, you know, omnipresent they're like god they must be always right and that was a aha moment like you said mm -hmm. and that sends a very strong image that and a strong example that if you're sorry about something have the humility and wherewithal and self-awareness to say so right what are some of the bad traits that children can pick up from parents who refuse to apologize well i mean to start with a, a rigidness just imagine how that's going to translate for example in interpersonal relationships romantic relationships work relationships not being able to to take credit. Credit is not only for like the project you handed in that was, you know, amazingly received. Credit also means, oh, I dropped the ball on this. So there's really no accountability. Being so to speak, wrong or making a mistake is part and parcel of being human. So then you're also setting this sort of perfectionist standard. So it, it is not amenable to interactions with human beings. When we come back, it can be argued that parents that seem over apologetic may change the dynamics of a family. We'll be discussing that next with Dr. Angela after sixpence, none the richer here on Light. It's a light breakfast with Shaz and I have Dr. Angela Bass in the studio with us and she is an international psychologist. We're talking about smart parenting and owning up to our mistakes. Now, Dr. Angela, can it be argued that parents who seem over apologetic can change the dynamics of the family? Yes. I mean, at one level, look with anything, whether it's not apologizing or apologizing too much, every family system is like an ecosystem and they're going to define what's right for them but you do want to hit the middle way or a balance always apologizing is almost sending out the subconscious message that i apologize for being alive mm -hmm. i don't think i have a right to exist everything i do is my fault or wrong and therefore you're subsuming disproportionate amount of responsibility you know if you're saying sorry for everything that must mean you did everything wrong right so it's not about blaming but it is about assigning responsibility uh, sort of equally if we find ourselves in that kind of position say you know you catch yourself uh, as i do <laughs> uh, what can we do to i guess stop it and uh, stop impacting our children in how um, we're, we're parenting what do you catch yourself doing apologizing <laughs> okay. all the time. You know? Yeah. I mean, so there's a behavioral uh, things you can do for behavioral change and there's also things you can do mentally. In terms of behavioral change, put a rubber band around your wrist. Every time you say sorry, snap the rubber band. Mm -hmm. It's sort of cause and effect. You'll condition yourself <laughs> like that snap of the rubber band is ouch and that will be associated with sorry and you'll be really surprised at how fast you stop saying sorry. But in terms of, you know, cognitively, 
really, it's like an onion. Peel off the layers. What do you have to be sorry about? And once you really start thinking like that, you you won't be so quick to just sort of automatically say anything that comes to your mind. All right, very interesting. Now, coming up, the Sherpa widows of Everest are climbing the mountain to fight a taboo. We'll find out more about that next here on Light. On My Matters, with me this morning is Dr. Angela Bass, international psychologist. Now, two Nepali Sherpa women are hoping to conquer Mount Everest next month, finishing off the job that their husbands started in a bid to empower fellow widows and prove that there is life after death. And in this conservative country, which routinely elevates men over women, widowhood can confine a bereaved woman to an even lower life of hostility, discrimination, and outright abuse. So these two women are hoping that by scaling the world's highest mountain, they can upturn perceptions about a widow's worth and complete the unfinished ascent of their husbands who died working as guides for foreign mountaineers. I think this is a great cause. Dr. Angela, how can women fight the perception that they can't do what men can do if this is indeed their mindset? I, I salute these two women. What a beautiful spirit, you know, and a, and a can-do attitude. I, I think fighting in some ways can be exhausting. It's not to say that there are things that don't warrant a fight. But having said that, if we're fighting everything, and, and it's that sort of gender differential is so inherent in everything, you know, honestly, from maybe how a grab driver speaks to countless numerous things throughout the day. I just think each one is a teachable moment. So, for example, it was my husband's birthday recently and I got a conversation going. Uh, it was a close, intimate dinner amongst everyone. And I think it was really eye opening, actually, for the men at the table because the women I, I, I got this topic started and then all the women in in so many ways will have shared experiences of this sort of gender differential and as they shared more and more the men at the table were like i have no idea Mm. so now at least i think we've seeded food for thought now coming up in the asian context uh let's talk about the glass ceiling has it improved has it cracked Uh, is it still there that's what we'll be discussing with dr angela next here on light On Mind Matters this morning, Dr. Angela Bass, international psychologist. In the Asian context, Dr. Angela, do you feel the situation of the glass ceiling has improved in the last few years, especially post hashtag Me Too? Yes, but we have a long way to go and not nearly as much as I think most people would have hoped for. So in the past, I think women were taught to keep their heads down, stay at home, and that wasn't a choice. If it's a choice and you want to, that's great. But I'm saying it wasn't a choice in the past. So keep your head down, you know, sort of mind your own business, stay at home. They weren't even taught to look up. So it would be kind of, you know, in the past, what ceiling? Now we've put a hairline crack, but we need to keep hammering at it. What are some of the steps we can take to hammer at this glass ceiling? I think a lot of times when I speak to people, they quit before they even start. So, you know, the other day I received a Facebook message. Someone was like, you you just have to inherently accept that people are discriminatory, they're racist, they're flawed. And, and my response was, I will never accept that. So it's, it's actually fighting the good fight, realizing that, you know, you might not see a tidal wave of change. And I think in society where we want Insta everything, Insta story, Insta dry cleaning, Insta everything, we're like, what? It's not broken? Uh, you know, how, how are we not paved away? And then we give up. 
up and we become cynical or we resort to this is the way it'll always be you know what can i say they're old fashioned and it excuses a lot of things none of it's excusable so calling it out or focusing on a game plan for yourself having a two year plan how you talk to your son and daughter all these things drop by drop add up to a collective change Right. And uh, you know it can become exhausting. How do you make sure that you yourself aren't burnt out by that good fight? Well, I mean, self-care. Again, somebody asked me, you know, is self-care necessary? I'm like, that's asking is breathing necessary? It's not a choice. It's a need. And if we don't care about yourself, if you don't pace yourself, then the care will have to come externally from a hospitalization or a breakdown. So no one's saying you have to go full throttle 100% Pace yourself. You're running a marathon, not a 100-meter dash. All right. Great words there. Thank you so much, Dr. Anjula. My pleasure. And this hour will be on our podcast, uh, available on light.my a little later this morning.